Good morning, friends. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is the day that you have made. We rejoice in it, Lord. We, we've come into these doors, um, some of us with heavy hearts, some of us um, filled with the songs of the birds that we heard at five this morning. And, and Lord, some of us come in tired, some of us come in ready for the day ready to celebrate this Memorial Day weekend. Um, Lord, wherever we're at, we pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to us as we read your word and um, as we grow to understand Jesus more and more. Would you help? It's only by your grace that we can grow in our faith and our love for you and our love for each other. So do this for the sake of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, you can open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. Or you can just listen as we read together. And, and today, just for the fun of it, we may not do this every week, but I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Ruth, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? 
She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Friends, it's a joy to be with you, and it's a joy to share a bit of this book with you, the, the story of Ruth. Um, it's been called many, many years ago by the German philosopher Johann von Goethe's the most beautiful short story in the world. And I tend to agree. It's, it's my favorite book in the Bible, right up there with John and Romans and about 20 others, but it's one of my favorites. Um, but here, here's where we're going to go today. Um, we're going to be focusing particularly on Ruth and Naomi this morning, and we're going to see this ordinary story of these two women and this farmer, Boaz, later in the story. And as we do so, we're going to be asking some questions of ourselves and, and of the text. But most of the rest of the Old Testament, if we look outside of the book of Ruth, we'll see stories comprised of very powerful people, kings and patriarchs, prophets, very important people in the story of God's redemption, his mission to redeem his creation. But sandwiched in between these very powerful people, these prophets, kings, and patriarchs, is this little book of Ruth. It's short, just four chapters, and it contains um, these really obscure characters who seem terribly ordinary. So what in the world is the story about a couple of widows and a farmer doing amidst all of these other famous stories that we read throughout the Old Testament? How could this be a part of God's mission? Those are couple of the questions I want us to address this morning. So first, how are we to read the story? How are we to understand the story of Ruth, a Moabite widow and a journey to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law? Well, I want us to think of it this way. It's one little part of God's story and his commitment to come to a broken world that he created, that we have messed up, and that he has committed himself in his grace and mercy to redeem and restore and save a people to make all things new. It's God's mission that ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So the story is about the mission of God, to save people. Now, part of being a Christian is witnessing to the good news of what Jesus has done. And as we think about joining God's mission and sharing our faith and, and, and having a burden for the loss, which I hope we do, we always have to remember that salvation ultimately is from the Lord. He's the one who saves. His burden is for the lost of this world, and his mission is to come and save. The mission of God is the background for this story of Ruth and gives us our theological setting. All right, what about our, the historical setting? Well, Ruth is an historical book and comes right after in sequence after the book of Judges. And that's the time in which this story is set. 
Um, so the time of the judges, and, and you all, I think, have been going through Samuel, uh, first and second Samuel, maybe the last uh, few months or so. And so you think about the story of the Exodus, the people are um, led to the promised land eventually, and it's that, that waiting period of sorts before kings were instituted, before David and, and Solomon. And it was at a time of constant rebellion of the people of Israel against God. The last verse of the book of the Judges gives us the historical context. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did as he or she saw fit. Or another translation of that. Everyone did what was, what was right in their own eyes. And so that's the setting, the historical setting of, of when Ruth, the story takes place. Now, and so as we think about, okay, this time of the Judges, if you've ever read this book of the Judges, you'll find it horrific. It's like a scary movie. It, it, it's, it's, it's awful in so many ways. It's been described by one very astute scholar as Israel being continually flushed down the toilet. If you have ever seen the television program Breaking Bad, that's really just a riff on the book of Judges, according to the creator of the show. The Israelites rebelled against God by serving the gods of other nations, small g gods of other nations. They ignored God's law. There was gross idolatry and wickedness, and God judges the people of Israel again and again. And then they cry out to God, and he delivers them again and again. That's the landscape. And that's the landscape of the time of the story of Ruth. And so one of the things, when I, when I started to read this, book. It was just like this incredibly ordinary story, this really small story in this grand scope of the historical narrative of scripture. And it made me think of, um, if you've ever been to one of the great museums of the world, you'll sometimes see a massive landscape painting, like the size of, of this wall over here. There's one uh, many, many years ago, we were at the Louvre in, in Paris, and, and it was uh, the coronation of Napoleon by uh, Jacques-Louis David or somebody like that. And it was massive. It was huge. It was like the whole wall. And you'd see these paintings, and it was just like this is incredible. The people are bigger than like real people in the painting. But then within that landscape painting, you would often see a miniature, something in the foreground, something that's taking place kind of away from the action, the focus of that painting. And it's a, a miniature within that massive landscape. And that miniature is the story of Ruth. It's this portrait of God's faithfulness during this time of decadence and decay. The great things of that age, and I think of this age maybe, are oftentimes very ordinary. We live in a time, similarly, of maybe we could call it decadence and decay. And so let's think a little bit about the uh, existential background of this story that applies today. If you ever hear somebody say to you, man, today, 21st century, Western culture, America, it's like the worst it's ever been. It's awful. All we see is degradation, violence, war, poverty, the way people treat it. It's terrible. It's, it's never been this bad. This is the worst of times. We can push back against that, I think, and say, um, first of all, well, really, there's nothing new under the sun. And furthermore, Personal autonomy and moralistic relativism have a long and tragic history. 
Just as in the day of the judges, when everyone did as he or she saw fit, we live in a day where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Individually, we become atomized. And even within the church, I think if we look at what's going on in the Western church, we see it's kind of balkanized. We've got these you know, bazillion denominations. We all think we're doing the right thing. And, and uh, I think we are living in a way in Judges 21, 25. We serve the idol of self, self-worship, personal autonomy. And I think it's a sin we're all drawn to. Pleasing myself, doing what I want to do. There, there's this writer, uh, James Weldon Johnson, back from late 19th century, early 20th century. And he had this anthology. And one of the characters in the anthology, I think, summed up actually our day really well. This, this character is saying to another, and they're having this big debate. You may convince me that you're right, but you'll never convince me that I'm wrong. That's the day in which we live. That's the existential background, both in our day and at the time of Ruth. So as we go through this book, the next couple of weeks, um, I want us to ask ourselves a, a few questions. What portrait is God going to be painting in this landscape of wickedness during the time of the judges? And furthermore, what miniature, what portrait of faithfulness is God painting today in your life, here and now. We'll see in Ruth the mission of God at work, and I hope we start to answer these questions about the portrait God is painting in our own lives, because we do have a part to play. We have a calling to serve God's mission. It's the same calling as Abraham and Israel and, and all those who have believed throughout the ages to be a blessing, to be a fragrance of life in God and declare the good news of God's grace ultimately in Jesus. So let's get to the story. That was a really long introduction, and I promise that it's like that we're about halfway through, so hang, hang with me, all right? All right, the story. Once upon a time, there was this guy, Elimelech, and names mean a lot in this story, and we're going to see that throughout. But Elimelech's name means God is king, and he and his wife, Naomi, her name means pleasant. They have two sons, Malon and Kilion, and they leave Bethlehem because there's a famine in the land. Now, Bethlehem, that name means land of bread. So uh, Elimelech and his family leave the land of bread because there's no bread in the land of bread. And there's this irony that we're going to see throughout the story. And they travel east to the other side of the Dead Sea to find a life there. Now, this famine that was happening in Israel, we see this throughout the, the book of the Judges where God judges his people and there's war. The people of Israel are, are dominated by the Midianites or the Moabites. And it was oftentimes the Midianites who, who um, attacked them by this war of attrition. They would stone their fields and then it would ruin their crops and then there would be famine. So it could have been that. We don't know for sure. But in any case, there's this famine and Elimelech decides to leave. Now, here's what's interesting. Elimelech, if he were a faithful Jew, he would have stayed in Israel and cried out to God for mercy. But instead, he flees to Moab. So we don't have a particularly good picture of Elimelech at this point. And here's why I say that, point that out, and it's, it's incredibly important to think about. Only in Israel, only in the promised land is there salvation. 
It's only there that you're going to find salvation. We think sometimes now as mission of, well, you go out, right? Centrical, centrifugal force. You go out to the nations. In the Old Testament, it was like, no, drawing people, the surrounding nations, like a magnet for them to say, who is this God that you worship? Why do you live this way? Drawing people to Israel. So it's in the land. It's among the Israelites that there's salvation. And so Elimelech, he decides instead to leave to leave the land of promise. Now, another interesting thing about Elimelech, he gives his sons Canaanite names. So again, not a great picture. Even though his name means God is king, not a great picture of Elimelech. And he proves to be faithless by departing the land of salvation. Now, why would Elimelech flee particularly when Moab is not the promised land of God's presence and grace, but is instead a pagan land where the small g god Chemosh is worshipped. This god Chemosh, he was a fertility god, and um, uh, it was a, a god to whom children were sacrificed. We read about in First and Second Kings, and ritual pro- uh, prostitution was practiced. And again, I want to just direct us like, yeah, it's 3,000 years ago. It's weird. People believe crazy things back then. It's different today. Is it, though? I wonder, is there a correlation today? Well, I think our lack of restraint on sexual liberty is pervasive. Sexual immorality is the liturgy of our self-worship. All right, well, yeah, so we worship that God. But sacrificing children? We don't do that. I don't know, the last six years, there have been about 1.2 million abortions a year. It goes back many, many years. So yeah, I think there's some, some, some commonality then and now. All right, but back to Elimelech. It gets worse. The family moves to Moab, and the men die. Now, this was essentially a death sentence for the women because Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, now they, they have no property that they own in that culture, ancient culture. Women didn't own anything. They had no protection under the law. That's why throughout Scripture, God describes himself as the defender of widows and orphans. And that was true many hundreds of years ago, then, there, and in many parts of the world today. So Naomi, Ruth, Orpah, they're destitute, and they're easy prey for men of ill intent. So Naomi makes the decision to return home. And we get from that decision the sense that Naomi is a believer, a faithful follower of God. She puts her hope in God that in Israel, there's going to be somebody who's going to see us and follow God's commands to take care of us. So, so let's go. There, there's going to be hope there. God is her only hope. And it's from God's people that she seeks mercy. But we notice in verses 13 and 20 that Naomi, whose name means pleasant, says, no, I've got a new name. It's bitter. I, I resonate with Naomi. She, like myself, maybe many of us, when things go badly, we we can become pretty embittered towards God. And yet God is so merciful. He puts up with such complaints. We're even called to complain to God. Throughout the Psalms, we see it. God, what are you doing? Why why are you downcast so much? God, why why are you hiding your face from me? Why don't I see you? We're called, like David did, to cry out to the Lord. And like Naomi and like David, I, like God, why is this happening to me? 
and God in his grace. He doesn't rebuke. And we see this throughout the Psalms that there's this, this complaining and maybe bitterness, but it's always followed with hope. It's like on the verge of despair, but oh, there's hope. God, I'll hope in you. We see this in Naomi. We're going to see this throughout the course of the story. Naomi is bitter, but there's hope. She's going to go to the place of hope. So Naomi and the women set out, but along the way, Naomi 